The primary purpose of the Matova Mind experience is to educate, and it doesn't constitute advice or services. Before making any changes, please consult a medical or dietary professional. Nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scour the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So, take a seat and enjoy the ride. Hey, 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 welcome back to the Matt Overmind Experience. I'm your host, Master Trainer and Weight Management Expert, Narado Zico Powell. And today, I have for you Board Certified Surgeon, Dr. Ardivan Asley. And we're going to talk about surgery today. We're going to talk about things that you really need to know we may even talk about some conspiracies. This is going to be a great episode. And of course, I'm going to have a hacket episode for you, right? And it's going to be questions that patients should ask surgeons before any procedure begin. And with that being said, let's welcome Dr. Asley to the show. Hey, Artivan, how are you doing today? Doing very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, my friend. And with that being said, tell my audience about yourself and your work. I'm a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon. Uh, that means that, you know, you can become spine surgeon by two ways. One, you can finish medical school, do a residency in neurosurgery, brain surgery, and then you can do a fellowship in spine surgery and then practice as a spine surgeon. The other way, the way that I went, uh, I became an orthopedic surgeon. After finishing my orthopedic surgery residency, I did a year in fellowship in spine surgery. And then after I finished, I started practicing as a spine surgeon. I finished all my training in 2002. So I've been in practice for about more than two years. I mean, 20 years. And uh, I've been in private practice. I had a very active research and development uh, part of my practice. Uh, And I see patients and I live here in Sacramento, California. I was going to say two years of experience. Should we, should I, should we be listening to you? <laughs> I can, of course. I can, of course. I can, of course. But yeah. now let's get into the nitty gritty of stuff. Cause you have some, you have a book out there that you've written some really good information. And so let's talk about medical device companies because they're making billions of spinal surgery with little effectiveness. Now ex- that's, that's such a strong statement. Explain that to us. Well, you know, uh, I got to tell you uh, that when I found these things out, I was shocked. I mean, I'm a surgeon. I do uh, implant these products all day for years, for many years. And we always had discussions when we went to these meetings, you know, what we're doing, what's the best way. But when I found out what has happened in the world of spine surgery, I, my jaw dropped. I remember the moment that I found out, oh my God, what we've done so far. And, and I never forget that moment. It was like almost like a lightning 
uh, went through my, like electricity going to my body. Um, so then the question is, well, what are you talking about? This is what happens in the world of spine to, do, to start with. Uh, spine surgery, but well, one thing that I want the audience to understand is that this is very important. Spine surgery is a very young field. Um, spine surgery, when we look at the spine, it really didn't start till the invention of MRIs. MRI was the first time, first tool that actually we could see the spine and see this cushion, the discs, the cartilage between the bones and see how they're affected, they're injured or not. MRIs got invented. The first uh, quality MRIs, the first MRIs were available commercially right around 1985. So uh, when the MRI becomes available, not everybody gets it. So it takes about 10 years for the hospitals around the country to start getting it. And the first uh, MRIs, they were not that good quality. So let's say by 1995, we had uh, kind of a widespread MRIs that they were decent quality that we could see these discs. So if you consider that, then you realize that, wait a minute, you know, that gives us only two and a half decades. And that's all the time that we've had so far to collect information. So one thing that I want the audience to understand is that spine surgery is a very young field and there are a lot of unknowns. And uh, um, there's no reason to get upset or something like that. Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it's a very frustrating field. The patient can go to a doctor and don't get any answers or uh, worse than that, they can go to five different doctors and get five different recommendations. And that can be frustrating. So the first thing that I want to tell my patients is that the spine surgery is very new. Is We have a lot of unknowns, but slowly but surely we are addressing and finding out these unknowns as we go along. So that's the first thing. Yes. I'm sorry, I mean to cut you off. I always have a quick um, sure. caveat question there. Can you talk yeah, about we're finding, you want. we're finding out the unknown. So is there what what what's your your I guess say projection on that? How soon do you think we're gonna get more answers? Oh my god. <laughs> that is a very, very difficult question to answer. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my book. So let me let me just talk one second for about for about my book. Uh, when I found out the conspiracy in the world of spine surgery that I will explain uh, pretty thoroughly next, uh, I had to write this conspiracy. I had to get it out to people. Why? Because I gave, I, I went over these with the leaders, so-called leaders of my field, and nobody wanted to listen to me. So I had to figure out why. Uh, somebody told me, hey, you can write a book. I'm like, okay. So I wrote them. But I didn't want this book to be just a complaint book and just talk about it. I really wanted to bring 20 years of my knowledge of spine surgery to patients so they can understand what is going on and they can decide how they can navigate this back pain issue um, through therapies. You know, do you go to chiropractor? Do you get physical therapy? Uh, the injections, are they good? Are they bad? So uh, my book is eight chapters. Um, the first four chapters, I teach my patients very, um, very, uh, uh, a very simple manner, uh, what I've learned in 20 years of practice. And then the 
chapter five through eight, uh, those are the controversy in the world of spine surgery. Now, uh, the first thing, the question that you asked, how we can uh, progress? Well, there's good news and the bad news. So uh, at this point, we don't have a test to tell us where the pain is coming from. We don't. Uh, we have the MRI, and the MRI can tell us if there's a damage, if there's a disc that's torn or not normal, uh, and that can be causing the pain. But the only way that we can find out if that disc is the source of the pain or not is to go fix it and then see if the patient gotten better or not. Really, that's that's the only way. We don't have a way to find that. That's why when we do surgeries, we cannot guarantee that the surgery is going to help the patient. Uh, I'll give you an example. This is a very well-known fact in the world of spine surgery. You can look at an MRI, somebody with a back pain. They can have two discs next to each other. One of them, horrible, just destroyed, arthritic, you know, worn. And the one above it doesn't look bad at all. Maybe just a dinky little tear, maybe very small. Well, it turns out that uh, the disc that looks horrible is not the source of the pain. And the disc next to it that doesn't look as bad is the problem that's that's just bothering the patient. Why? The way I explain to my patient is that we can see the damage, but it turns out that damage is not what causes the pain. What causes the pain is inflammation. And the inflammation is body's attempt to repair the damage. So that's a very important concept that I want my patients to understand. Why? Because, uh, because one of the things, as I said, we can tell you what we can do, but we cannot guarantee that a treatment is going to work for you. And we don't have a test for it. So that is one of the future inventions that we need. We need an imaging study that can tell us specifically where the pain is coming from. That way, we can do surgeries that I can tell the patient, we're going to fix you. Don't worry. As opposed to, hey, we're going to do this big surgery. Chance of you getting better is 60%, 70%. But the problem is we don't know if that invention is going to come, when it's going to come. So in my book, I explained that we cannot wait around for that invention. We have to do, maybe it wouldn't come around at all. So we have to do what we can as a collective, not just doctors, but actually patients, because patients need to understand what we're dealing with, and we need the patient's help by understanding what we're doing. So we as a collective, the surgeons, doctors, and the patients, we can improve the quality of spine care. That is you know, so powerful. So then I have a follow-up question because now my brain's just spinning as we're talking now. So you hit on a buzzword, inflammation. So I can't just I can't just bypass that. So explain how is inflammation a source of pain? And uh what and what um uh, what role does the client play in let's say improving this chronic inflammation? Correct. So we gotta go back and define inflammation. So we understand what's that all about. You know, inflammation has a very bad connotation. If you hear something's inflamed, you just want to get rid of the inflammation. Inflammation, because when you have inflammation, you have pain. Well, it turns out inflammation is body's construction site. 
That's how body repairs itself with inflammation. Uh, the best analogy that I've come up throughout the years is that if you have a construction site, the first thing you do is put a fence around it so nobody can come in and disrupt your work. So that what pain is. Pain tells the person that, hey, I'm trying to work here. Don't move in a way. Because if you keep moving, keep aggravating, well, they can't, you know, the body cannot repair that damage. So in a way, pain is essential for the repair mechanism. Well, it turns out, unfortunately, when it comes to spine, now, uh, everybody's so different. So that's one of the difficult things with spine surgery is like, everybody's so different. Different. Um, there is no bell-shaped curve that we can say, okay, this is what the 80% of the patients have to follow, like blood pressure. We know what the normal blood pressure is. We know uh, abnormal blood pressure is. We know what the blood pressure medicines do, and therefore we can control the blood pressure. Uh, the way I explain it is that when it comes to back pain, the back pain, you know how we are billions of people on this planet, nobody's face is the same. That's how the back conditions are. So in a way, the back condition has a flat distribution among the population, meaning that everybody's so different. So that's what makes treating back pain even more difficult. It makes my job interesting, so I'm not bored. After 20 years of practice, every time I show up to the clinic, I know I'm not going to get bored because everybody's so different. But at the same time, it makes my job difficult to tell the patient what to expect with treatments. Wow. Yeah. Right, right. So let's talk about the inflammation. We're talking about the inflammation. So we know that the inflammation and pain is necessary to repair mechanism. Well, the problem is this with spine. When a disc gets damaged, there is no way that the body can repair that because it cannot um, overcome gravity. So let's say you have a tire you put a nail in a tire there's only one way that car goes down the car doesn't come up and suck air and kind of patch the hole uh, as long as you are on earth and you're exposed to gravitational forces that means that disc is constantly getting banged up well it turns out now we don't know but we have an idea that it turns out that damage is not the problem it's the body's attempt to re so in a way in spine uh, with the treatments that we have, like therapy injections or so, which I'm going to get back to it, you're telling the body to quit, try repairing the problem. And mm. that's what causes it. So a lot of my patients, they tell me, is this injection, is this therapy going to fix my disc? I'm like, no. If you get an MRI year after year, that disc is going to look worse. But there's no correlation between how that disc looks and how you feel because it's the inflammation. And that's why you have good days and bad days. The MRIs don't change. You get an MRI, it looks exactly the same. But you have a good day, you do something, then you're bad, you're in severe pain. Now, one of the things that patients, one of the common questions the patients ask me is that, what can I do to get better? Every patient that comes in, they have two questions that they ask me. What can I do to get better and what's going to happen to me? We don't know, we have, we don't have the knowledge what you can do to get better. We don't have that. We don't know what you can do to get better, but we know how you can wreck yourself. And that's by lifting. Lifting is going to aggravate your back. Um, and this is how it works. 
And this is after seeing thousands and thousands of patients and talking to patients for hours on end. Uh, my practice is a little bit different than the rest of the people, surgeons that practice. In my practice, I don't have physician's assistant or uh, nurse practitioners. I'm the only caregiver, healthcare provider. So I tell my patients, you know, I'm the guy who takes your sutures out around on your patient, write your medicine, discharge you, do the surgery, do the injections. I'm the only guy. So throughout the years, with so much contact with the patient, I've learned uh, what is the back pain, what is the uh, early stages and late stages of back pain. So uh, what with thousands of patients that I've talked to, I've come to the conclusion, as I said, I could be wrong. You, Somebody might not fit into that uh, category, but uh, it's true in about 80, 90% of the patients that's always lifting that aggravates the pain. Now, this is what happens. You can lift an object. Um, you will not feel pain sometimes two, sometimes three days after. Let's say you lift this couch, and then you can go up to three days with absolutely no pain. Three days later, you could be reaching for a piece of paper. You can sneeze. Uh, you can do something very trivial, and then, ooh, and then you feel like somebody stabbed you in the back. You'll have the severe pain for a few days, maybe a few weeks, and you wonder, I didn't do anything. Uh, so beginning of my practice, patients used to come and tell me that I wasn't doing anything. So the more I start talking to the patients and try to figure this out, I think I've gotten the answer. Uh, like beginning of my practice, I was taught by my, by my professors that, man, you can even blow your disc with a bad cough or so. Because that's very known. I mean, people cough and then they have this back pain uh, that they have to get all the treatments. Well, I can tell you that after two, 20 years of practice, what I've realized is that it's not the cough that throw your back out. More likely than not, this person did something two days earlier, a day earlier, lifted something, did injure their back, but now the cough has triggered it. And that most likely what's going on. Because if a cough can blow a disc, then on the winter time, we should have lines of people with back injury in the emergency rooms, right? But that doesn't happen. <laughs> I know. So, so what I, one thing that I have to tell my patients is this. You have to have a memory chip in your head. Every time you lift something that you think is heavy, you got to put it in your head. Then if you start having pain, then you can go back in your memory and figure out what was it that triggered that pain, how much weight it was to trigger the pain. So what happens is that over the months and years, you can figure out what is the limit for your back. And everybody's limit is very different. And unfortunately, everybody's limit doesn't stay the same. It starts moving back and forth, like it gets more or less. And once you figure out that limit, then you do activity modification. By activity modification means not lifting that weight. Mm. And then these are the people that they can manage their pain throughout the years. Um, wow. Right. But of course, this limit, people say, well, I didn't lift anything. And I tell them, look, you might think that you didn't lift anything heavy, but you don't know what that disc is thinking. That disc it might take it only like 20. I mean, for me, 20 pounds is nothing. 
30 pounds is nothing. But if I have a disc that's injured, that's prone, because those discs holding your entire body, your entire upper body and whatever you're lifting goes through the middle of that disc. That disc is not sharing the weight with anything else. There's nothing around the spine that shares the weight, distributes the weight. No, that disc is holding everything. So you might think what you lifted is not heavy. You don't know what that disc is thinking. That's the problem. And, so, and that yes, sounds pretty, uh, sorry, let me to cut you off there, but that, um, sure. cause that's a lot of information for our audience. I just wanted to kind of give a little break right there in the top right. because it, it looks, I'm, I'm hearing a couple of things here. For one, you're talking about the role that chronic, that information plays. Cause like you said, information tends to be bastardized or whatever the word is today. Right. But we don't right. really understand that information actually are more like helpers. They're there to repair and re- help you to recover. So whenever you have inflammation, usually it's a sign of there is an issue somewhere where the inflammation is trying to heal. And then the second piece of that is talking about the patients. The pa- the biggest thing I, I took away from that was the memory chip is really p- looking at, okay, I did this few days later, this happened. Maybe you have to create the, keep a journal, you know, so you can write it down and see what your habits are that led up to it. Cause usually you're not going to feel the pain right then and there is going to be delayed. And if you can go back and look at what you did for times before that, then you can say, okay, I see where the correlation is. And this is something you can present to your surgeon or to your doctor as well. Correct. Correct. So let's talk about the controversy. You know, the, the, the uh, big bad boy in the room. And for audience to understand the controversy, I got to go back and teach the audience a little bit of surgeries that we do. Are you okay with that? Go ahead. Lay it on us. Very good. So before invention of MRI, we had x-rays. We would get x-rays from people that had back pain, and we will see that one of these discs, the cartilage cushion between the bones have deteriorated. Therefore, we call them degenerative disc disease. So to treat that, we came up with a surgery called fusion surgery. What we do, the idea is to go from the front or the back or combination, take the disc out, remove the disc out. Now we have a space. We have to fill the space with something. We would put a block or a spacer between the two bones and put bone chip between the two bones and hoping that bone chip will turn into a solid bone and the two bones that had a disc between them that was bad will fuse together, eliminating motion and eliminating pain. So we came up with that surgery. Well, that surgery became popular in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, that became popular. What happens is that we started seeing a lot of people that they would not heal it. We call it non-union. After all, you put the bone chip between the two bones and it's left for the patient within the next three to four months for this bone to become a solid bone. And the surgeon doesn't, surgeon can do a good carpentry, but surgeon doesn't have any control of the patient's biology. And that's purely patient's biology. Well, sometimes about one out of four patients, which is not a small number, they didn't heal it. Well, if it doesn't heal, guess what? The back pain will come back a lot worse. So this is what happened. Orthopedic surgeons said, wait, we know how to heal a bone. Uh, we've been putting screws and plates on the extremity fractures, like an arm fracture, leg fracture, uh, and that works great. 
So why don't we do that to spine? And in 1985, a group of surgeons from France came to United States and showed a technique that they put, they could put a very large screw from back to the front into the vertebral body like that. And then you put these screws subsequently on subsequent vertebrae. And these screws have a tulip that accepts a rod. Then uh, you put these screws on one on each side and then you connect them with a rod. And that we called it instrumentation, fixation of the vertebrae. When these screws came out, there was a really bad controversy. The results were not good. At some point, there were 7,000 lawsuits against the manufacturer. Lawyers not only sued the manufacturer, but they sued the doctors, the surgeons. There, at some point, there were 500 lawsuits against North American Spine Society and American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. That was right around early 1990s. In 1993, a surgeon called Dr. Zedevlik published a paper saying that these screws work beautifully. They just work perfect. And uh, they said he said he came to the conclusion that screws improve outcome and increases fusion rate very predictably upon like 95 plus percent of the time. So basically, if you put these screws, they all heal. So that gave us a green light to start using these screws, basically. And the using the screws became a routine in these fusion surgeries. Everybody who got a fusion, they got these screws and rods. And I remember I finished my training in 2002. Uh, I started doing all these surgeries. Well, what happened is that right around 2011, 2012, uh, I started working on a project. When these screws are inserted into the vertebrae. Well, the vertebrae, a backbone, is not a solid block of bone. It's not like a brick. It's actually like a shoebox. It's like a cinder block. Outside bone, the shell is a very dense bone we call cortical bone, but the inside bone is a spongy, weak bone we call cancellous bone. So we knew that as the age population age, and as the patient gets old, the cancellous weak bone inside the vertebrae got really weak. So when we started doing these surgeries, we started seeing very bad problems at people about like 65 and above. So we knew this was a problem because these screws will just pull out, will just cut out. So what do we do? So I started a project working on this device that I uh, used composite straps to wrap around the lamina, which is a uh, bone bridge that connects the both sides in the back of the vertebrae and it forms the roof of spinal canal. This lamina is a cortical bone. So I told myself, I said, well, let's figure out where the vertebrae is strongest. And if that area is, is available for anatomically to actually grab it. So I came up with this device. It was a flat plate that sits against the lamina and then uses composite straps to wrap around the lamina and it gets tension like a zip tie. And that plate has a tulip attached to it. And we show it actually. 
here. Actually, I have the device right here. So as you can see right here, this is where we put the screws in. The screws goes inside the vertebrae. But the device that I invented was a flat plate that sits against the lamina, uses composite straps to wrap around the lamina, and once you tension tie it, there's a screw right here that you turn that screw and it clamp, clamps the uh, strap. So this device holds onto the vertebrae without penetrating the vertebrae. Okay, so this is what happened. I presented my device to Congress of Neurological Surgeons in 2015, and I won the Innovation Showcase. That means that Congress of Neurological Surgeons, the brain surgeons, the neurosurgeons in the country who were in charge, they thought that my invention was worthy enough to be presented to the rest of the community. But now this is what happened. As I was developing this device, I had some problems. Then I said, you know what? Let me look at the screw, say why they don't have it. So when I looked at the screw, I said, oh, my God, they have the same problem, but nobody mentions that. So that led into more and more research about the screw, and that's where the whole story begins. So I started questioning these screws. I started questioning our methods, basically. So first what I did, I went and started searching the literature. What do we have evidence? What, what, what are, what's out there that says these screws work, doesn't work, and how? Well, what I found was frightening. After Dr. Zdeblik published the paper in 1993, six, so he wrote that paper by himself. He was the sole author. He published a paper in 1993. Then six multinational, multi-center, multi-author papers came out in late 1990s and early 2000s and said these screws don't work. They don't increase fusion rate. They do not improve outcome. So basically what they did is that they had two group of patients. One, they did the surgery, but they didn't put screws in. The second group got the same exact surgery, but with the addition of the screws and rods. And they found out that addition of the screws and rods did not make any difference. So this is very important for the audience to understand. It doesn't say that the spine surgery doesn't work. No. Both of these groups, they had good outcomes. So surgery worked, except the research said that we don't have to make the surgery so expensive. We don't have to use all these screws all the time. But these studies went just, people just kind of a brush. And these studies were not some studies that were published in some junky uh, article. No, they were actually uh, written and published in Spine Journal. Spine Journal is our Bible. We, I get Spine Journal every I mean, I'm, so, I'm so, so subscribed to it. So I constantly read it. And that's how we kind of keep up with the latest and greatest uh, um, inventions or, or techniques. So it was published in our own spine literature. So I said, wait, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. So what is going on here? Let's go back and revisit that Dr. Zdeblik's study. Well, what just, it's so funny. When I was doing this, I literally felt I was living in a movie. If you have a movie that has a horrible conspiracy, this 
actual conspiracy beats it by a mile. Every time I thought things cannot get worse, it did. So I went back and looked at the paper that was published by Dr. Zdeplik. First thing that I found out was that this paper was published as a preliminary report. I spent two years to find out the final report. Eventually, I was at a conference talking to one of the professors. I said, where's the final report? I can't find it. He goes, there's doesn't exist. That study was never finished, and it was abandoned in the middle. I was like, oh, my God. I got to dig a little bit deeper into this thing. Let me see what's going on. And everything that I say is in Google. It's not some conspiracy theorist. This is like, like a well-known fact. As I did more research, I found out that, so Dr. Zedeblik publishes a paper in 1993. Starting in 1996, he started getting paid by the manufacturer of these screws. So he started getting paid in 1996. By 2004, he got paid $34 million. Allegedly for some stuff that he uh, invented. I cannot comment on that. I've seen those inventions, and let's say I'm not impressed. But he got $34 million that we know. So I was like, oh, my God, wait. Just when you think, think that cannot get worse, it, got, it did get worse 10 times worse. So Medtronic, the company who manufactured these screws, uh, Start getting paying Dr. Uh, Zedevlik from 1996 to, to, to 2004. But in 2005, Medtronic, same company, put Dr. Zedevlik in charge of another important study. This was a study about a bone graft substitute. I don't want to get into the details of it, but when we normally do fusion surgery, we get bone from somewhere, and then we throw that bone chips for the chips to solidify. Well, that bone got to come somewhere. The problem is that where we took the bone from became the problem. So we were trying to avoid doing that. So uh, uh, there's a product called BMP, bone morphogenic protein. There's a hormone called BMP. We all have it. When you break your bone, it gets excreted, and that stimulates bone healing. They have identified that, and it comes as a product. So this product promised that this is going to negate all the need for bone grafting. So we don't have to wreck the patient. Uh, so uh, Medtronic put Dr. Zedeblik in charge of this study. This time he got caught falsifying his results. It's just crazy. I was like, wait a minute. Now, I mean, it was, and now I got to go back and explain to the audiences that what happened in 1993 and what happened in 2005 it's not like I saw this from a journal like Wall Street Journal or New York Post. No, this was from United States Senate. United States Senate did two investigations in 1993 for these screws and in 2005 for that BMP study. And as a matter of fact, United States Senate came to the conclusion that the paper that was written in 2005 was not written by Dr. Zedeblik himself, was written by the company. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that, for one, the, the paper was written by the company. It was also wasn't a complete paper. So, so the research and the findings were never actually completed. But then he's been uh, 
um, profiting from this research over time. So then am I hearing that, that, that we're making surgeries even more expensive than they actually have to be by adding in these screws? Far more expensive because you got to understand screws are expensive. They're like about $1,000 each, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. When you put these screws, you can damage the patient. Patient can have nerve damage and stuff. But overall, I got to say, I put these screws all the time myself. And I'll explain why I'm doing that. But uh, because it's a standard of care. Patients, people ask me, like, why you know this thing about screw? Why do you? Because it's a standard of care. I cannot start practicing something my own way. I'm trying to change the standard of care. But until the standard, standard of care changes, I'm going to practice the standard of care. So I have to say that putting these screws are pretty safe now because everybody kind of started learning and they've learned it. But when you put the screw in, you have to have a neurophysiologist in the operating room that monitors the nerves. So if you get too close to the nerve, they can alert the surgeon saying that, hey, you got to reposition that screw. Two, when you put these screws in, you have to have x-rays in the room or some sort of an imaging machine. Well, that imaging machine has to run by a specialist that runs the machine. So now we have two people extra in the room. Well, after you do the surgery, you have to get uh, other x-rays or CT scan to see if the screws are in the correct place. And sometimes they're not in the correct place. Then you have to take the patient back and take them out. And uh, plenty of time, these screws are not small. They're pretty big size. You can see these are screws, but they're pretty big. So plenty of time after the surgery, the screws themselves cause pain that we have to go back and take them out. So that's another additional surgery. So as you can see, it's not just the cost of the screw. It's the whole, you know, uh, it's a whole gamut of thing that has to happen. But wait, here comes the thing that I have to talk about. So what do we have here? We have a study that was never finished by a guy that's known to falsify his results. Oh, and by the way, he got paid $34 million uh, from the manufacturer. So these are the known facts. These are something from the United States Senate. Um, and then all these papers that said this stuff doesn't work. So I had to sit down and I would present these to the leaders of the field. I would hunt. People might say, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? I have done that. I've done all of those. I have chased them down. I have ambushed them. I have told them about these papers. And gets nowhere. I'll tell you a funny story. I was 2016 in Congress of uh, in North American Spine Society. So when I say this, I don't uh, just say this and wrote the book. No, I'm fighting the fight. I go to these conferences and I get up and, and say this stuff. So I got up in 2016. My knowledge wasn't where it is now. I was just starting to question our methods, basically. So I got up in front of thousand spine surgeons and I said, so far, all the papers say that the screws don't work. So what's going on? And then the uh, people in the panel, they said, oh, no, we tested it and they worked later. And I I was going to say, well, why didn't you publish those? But but I was like, I didn't want to get in a fight. So I sat down. 20 minutes later, I'm in line to get coffee. I'm talking to a representative from the company. We're just talking. 
he introduces me to a surgeon behind me that was standing in line. He turns around to him and says, yeah, Dr. Asley doesn't like the screws. That surgeon turns to me and says, oh, you're the gentleman that made that comment. Well, I just want to tell you that uh, everybody's welcome for their opinion, but you're very wrong. I said, it's not about me. It's about the research. If all these research says that these screws don't work, maybe, just maybe they're trying to tell us something. That's all I'm saying. He said, I know. I published those papers. Those are my patients. I'm like, yeah, what's your name? He tells me his name. Of course, I cannot disclose it. But he was a very well-known surgeon in Bay Area, I would say. That's, that's keep it at that. I had the papers in my hand. I said, what's your name? Okay. His, his paper was the second paper. I pulled it up. He says, see, that's me. That's me. He was the fifth author. I said, well, let's read your paper. At the end of the paper, it said, based on current evidence, we do not recommend routine use of screws in spinal fusion. He looked at it. He looked at it again. He said, no, that's wrong. And he walked away. And that was his paper. That's what I'm dealing with. Wow, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. And that's, I mean, the audience is listening, especially anyone who has to go through surgery can imagine what um the things that they kind of have going on in their minds now. Now, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to finish with a hack of the episode because I really want to ask you to kind of summarize this for me because I introduced this to the audience. Yes. What are questions now? Now that we know this kind of stuff, what questions should patients ask surgeons before beginning any procedure? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I've gone through this quite a bit. Like you can ask the surgeon, you know, uh, how many of these have you done? Or, you know, unfortunately, those are not a very good indication. I tell you a inside, inside information. If you really want to know, and this is very hard for patients to do, but if you really want to know who's the good surgeon, you ask the nurses that work in the operating room. They're the only ones that are really qualified to tell you who's a good surgeon, who's not. So if you have access to somebody who works at the hospital in the OR, that's the best way to find out if the surgeon is good or not. But I would say probably, uh, you know, my book explains all of this very clearly in terms of what you have to go through or so. Uh, but the best thing to ask the surgeon is that, you know, is there any other alternatives? Is there a minimally invasive alternative to what you've proposed? Because our training is so different. I mean, from one surgeon to the next, based on who we've trained with, could be so different. I had a patient that uh, came to me and he said, my surgeon has proposed this huge surgery in my neck. This patient had like four neck surgery. So... He's about to go in and open up this, you know, neck and flail my my muscles and everything. And I told him, look, there's a smaller surgery that you can go in and slip this graft, this cage from behind into the facet joints. It might work. It has chances of it happening about 85, but it's so small that I'd rather do that first. And if that doesn't work, then we can do, we can always do that huge surgery flailing your neck, but let's do this one first. So he said, okay, let's do that first. I did the surgery. It took 45 minutes. I did that surgery. I came out, headache gone, 
neck pain gone, arm pain gone, and it was wonderful. So I really think one thing that the patients need to ask is there, is there any minimally invasive alternative to that surgery or not? Um, now, but I want to go back and give you a total thing that what happened about the screws. Uh, it took me three years to try to question my field, my professors. Why are we doing this? Why is this mountain of evidence says something and we're doing something else? And I think I found the answer. And this is how it goes. We are orthopedic surgeons first. In orthopedic surgery, they slam it into our head. They just just put it into our head that carpentry, uh, what we call rigid fixation with screws and rods, is the answer for bone healing. So we finish that. We become orthopedic surgeons. Then we do one year, only one year of spine surgery fellowship, and then we do spine surgery. So we learn all the information, all the techniques from orthopedic surgery. We apply those knowledge, those know-how to spinal fusions. And I'm coming out saying that we shouldn't have done that. Spine surgery was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. The whole thing needs to change from the beginning. As a matter of fact, what worked for extremity does not work for a spine. It's almost like going from quantum physics to from going from Newtonian physics to quantum physics. When you deal with something much more complex, you need a whole new techniques and know-how. That makes sense. And, and that's what we have to do. We, Spine surgery was never meant. As a matter of fact, I say, whatever you learn in orthopedic surgery, you got to unlearn it and then relearn. What, I'll give you an example. This is how people understand. The concept of rigid fixation with screws and rods works in extremity for one important reason. Because if you have a construct that's not very strong, you can protect it by eliminating gravity. You can put the patient in a cast. You can put the patient in a, in a crutches. and Eliminate gravity. You can take a nine weight bearing. Well, you can't eliminate gravity in the spine. You cannot hold the patient up uh, for three months at a time. So the construct that you have in the spine has to be a construct that can absorb stress. The way I explain it is that it's like building a building in an earthquake zone. We learned that we cannot make it stiff. So if you build a high rise in San Francisco, you put it on rollers, you make it a little bit not uh, flexible to fall, but a little bit just to give so it can, when there is an earthquake, it can, it can, has a little bit give so it can dissipate that stress and doesn't just fall into pieces. And that's what's happening with, right now. These screws and rods are rigid fixations. So something happens the second the patient gets up, that construct is under constant stress. So with a slight little thing that just cuts out and once it cuts out, the whole thing is failed, basically. So, and I explained it to a 14-year-old, they understand it. Except when I tell them to a spine surgeons, they just cannot unlearn. What well, they've already this learned. Just been, yeah, right, that makes sense. Right. And I've seen that a lot in, in practices. And even when I talk about nutrition and fitness, you know, what you, it's hard to unlearn what you've already learned and been practicing for a long time. And let me tell you, the week could... God, Dr. Asley, we could be, we could talk about this forever and ever. We're probably going to end up having a part two to the episode, but I do have to cut it short right here, my friend. You've given us so much good information and thank you so much for sharing everything. 
Well, last question sure. I'm going to ask is how can my audience learn more about your work? Um, I have, uh, boy, I've been really, uh, well, my book is available on Amazon. It's only $25, so it's not very expensive at all. But the first four chapters, it's really there's so much information about spine care. If you have back pain, what do you do? Where do you go from there? Uh, so I start, I start from beginning all the way to surgery so they can read that. Now I have, uh, built a website, uh, that I have videos that I actually go chapter by chapter. So if the patients read the chapter, they don't understand or they don't want to read the book. They can go to the website called, um, called, uh, corporate spine book. The name of the book is corporate spine. So the website is corporate, corporate spine book.com. And then they have these videos that they can watch. And I would uh, read the comments. I would not answer them because I just don't have time. But if I see like a question that's been repeated, you know, over and over, then I can make a new video for for you, for the audience. Thank you so much for sharing that. And this information will be in the show notes. The show notes going to be zikahel.com slash corporate spine book. Dr. Asley, thank you so much for being here. And thank you, audience, for for listening and watching. And uh, let's get out of here, fam. Thanks for joining the Matter Over Mind experience. If you got good content out of this or any of my shows, save, subscribe, and share it with anyone who needs this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.